Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. These readings come from the Common English Bible. You can find this reading on page 173 in the Pew Bible. I received a tradition from the Lord, which I also handed on to you. On the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. He did the same thing with the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do this to remember me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. This is why those who eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord inappropriately will be guilty of the Lord's body and blood. Each individual should test himself or herself and eat from the bread and drink from the cup in that way. Those who eat and drink without correctly understanding the body are eating and drinking their own judgment. Because of this, many of you are weak and sick, and quite a few have died. But if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. However, we are disciplined by the Lord when we are judged so that we won't be judged and condemned along with the whole world. For these reasons, my brothers and sisters, when you get together to eat, wait for each other. If some of you are hungry, they should eat at home so that getting together doesn't lead to judgment. I will give directions about the other things when I come. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, for a few glorious moments this past week, I remembered what it was like to have hair. <laughs> I don't know how you people with long hair do it. It was in my face all the time. So I believe in the communion of saints. That's the line for the day. It's interesting. Did you know that Martin Luther and his fellow reformers of the Protestant Reformation nearly took that line, communion of saints, out of the Apostles' Creed. It turns out that when they were developing the creed long before Luther, early in the days of the church, they put that line in there out of a belief that there was a holding place called purgatory, a place where people go after they died in order to purify and prepare themselves for eternity in heaven. Well, along comes Martin Luther, and he realizes that there is no direct reference in the Bible to a place called purgatory, and so he comes to the conclusion that no place must exist. And he even goes a step farther and says that we should not pray to the saints or have icons of the saints or, or celebrate the saints at all. And so he decided that that line, communion of saints, did not belong in the creed. In fact, as it turns out, the earliest Lutheran churches would silently skip over that line in the creed whenever they would recite it. I suspect it must have gone something like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. <laughs> the forgiveness of sins. Over time, the Protestant church figured out a way to understand this line and put it back in the creed. 
they realized that what it really means is not only biblical, it is foundational to what we believe at the core of our convictions as a people of Jesus Christ. And so as we wind down our series on the core of our convictions, we finish this morning with two lines, the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins that remind us of something that is so important to our Christian convictions. In fact, something that changes everything about who we are in Jesus Christ. Just this past week, I had some deeply rich conversations with my dad and my aunt, my dad's sister. And I asked them questions about my dad's dad, my paternal grandfather. He died long before I was born. I knew very little about him. I didn't really ask much, many questions about him until this past week when I'm a bit ashamed to admit that when my sister-in-law called and asked me what the name of my paternal grandfather was, I didn't even remember. So I asked my dad and my aunt about him. My grandfather's name was Fernando de Vega. He was, by trade, of all things, a map maker. I didn't know that until this past week. He spent much of his time on the water, riding ships, working for the Filipino government, charting islands and coastlines all throughout the Philippine Islands. In fact, he would note the locations of coasts and rocks and bays of many of the Philippine Islands, 7,000 islands. I didn't know that. I know more about my, my maternal grandfather. My grandfather on my mom's side was named Hanaro Rojas. He, he also spent a lot of time on the water. He was a shipping distributor, a major shipping distributor in a large island called Mindoro. And one of his main products that he shipped all across the island was, if you can believe it, Pepsi-Cola. As it turns out, both of my grandfathers were young adults during World War II, and they both played important roles supporting the Allied efforts against the Japanese. My dad's dad wrote maps, shared them with the Filipino government, and used them as they used them against the Japanese forces. My mom's dad, that lowly shipping distributor, and part-time fishermen would often disguise himself as just a little old fisherman, but would keep an eye doing secret espionage and reconnaissance on the location of Japanese soldiers. I have to say that when I've learned these stories this past week and all throughout my life, when I hear these stories about people that are long gone before I was even born, when I hear stories about my ancestors, the best way I can describe it is that my DNA tingles. And I suspect that has been the case for many of you, as you've learned about your family trees, about your ancestors. Because whenever we hear stories about how big our family is, 
all across time throughout the generations, we learn something, not just about our ancestors, but about ourselves. And we realize that no matter what we go through in life, we are part of something bigger than ourselves, right? Last March, there was some major news in the world of genomic studies, the study of heredity. In the journal Science, there was an article about a breakthrough by a man named Yaniv Ehrlich. Mr. Ehrlich is a professor of genetics at Columbia University. And he and his team made major news when they created what is now the world's largest family tree in history. Using data that they found on various online ancestry databases, Ehrlich and his team went through the painstaking work of establishing genetic links between people all around the world and all throughout history. And they were able to put together a single family tree that has, are you ready for this, 13 million people. 13 million people that span all across the world, spans 11 generations going back 600 years. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if if some of you are part of that family tree. Not because you're 600 years old, but because there's a good chance it encompasses many of you. But here's the most astonishing part of it all. That, That one family tree of 13 million people is just one family tree of some 5.3 million other family trees that we have established. That means a lot of people. In fact, in an article in the Atlantic magazine, somebody interviewed Yaniv Ehrlich and asked him about how all of us, as different as we might appear on the outside, how all of us may be related And what he said was, there is a prominent theory in genetics that suggests that all you have to do is go back 75 generations. That's it. 75 generations back, and we discover that as we pan the camera out to its widest and highest frame, that we are all related together as one big family, as one big communion, perhaps. You know, Martin Luther and the Reformers eventually decided to go ahead and re-include that phrase, communion of saints, in the Apostles' Creed. Not because they believed in purgatory or because they believed in a purification of souls after we die, but because we believe that at the core of our convictions as a Christian people, that in Christ, we are all related to one another. That we are part of a grand cosmic family that unites us across the world and across time. Regardless of how different we might appear on the outside, regardless of our differences, we are all part of one family that crosses all differences, all borders, and all backgrounds. That's what it means to believe in the communion of saints, that it encompasses people who are different from us and even people who have long gone before us. 
even people that we are grieving today. They're here as part of that communion of saints. Think about it this way. Here's, here's another image or metaphor for you. If, you. if you or someone that you know has ever gotten married, a family member uh, gotten married, then you know that one of the routines on the wedding day is to pose for a family photo either before or after the ceremony. I mean, you know how this works, right? We have countless weddings here in our sanctuary. The photographer usually begins with the bride and the groom in the picture by themselves. After all, they're the stars of the show. They're the the chief celebrities of the day. But gradually, the, the photographer invites a few more family members into the photo immediate family, like like parents and and siblings, children. And eventually, a few more family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles. A few more, second cousins, people that aren't really related, but you call them family. Eventually, some people who you don't know and just kind of showed up in the sanctuary. They're (laughs) They're all part of the picture. And as this whole routine goes on, the photographer keeps taking one more step backward, further and further away from the chancel in order to make room for this ever-expanding, ever-inclusive family wedding photo. I want to suggest to you that the next time you say the phrase, I believe in the communion of saints, that you picture in your mind a giant, cosmic family wedding photo that is bigger than anything you have ever posed for in any wedding, but is even more powerful than any family you've ever been a part of. I want to suggest to you that in the center of this family wedding photo is also a bride and groom. Who's the bride and the groom? Well, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the groom, and the bride is his church, a vast throng of people as far as the eye can see. You might even imagine that Jesus is standing there, beaming with pride, and next to him would be his best man, John the Baptist, standing there wearing a a camel hair tuxedo. (laughs) Then there's his whole line of groomsmen, a couple fishermen, tax collector, the doctor, couple boys who call themselves the sons of thunder, James and John, you know they're dressed and ready for a party. Standing next to Jesus would be the mother of the groom, right? Mary's got to be in that picture too. She's probably wearing blue. Not the young teenage Mary that we celebrate at Christmas. We, we might picture a, an older, wiser, more experienced Mary, the stately matron looking proud. There's lots of people in that picture. The the interesting thing is if you look at everybody in that picture, they don't all look the same. They're not all dressed the same. It's a whole rainbow. An, An uncle who somehow always found the time for you, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, they're all there. People who are lights in your life, they're part of your family photo too. And whenever we say the line, communion of saints, whenever we gather around the communion table, it's like posing for that family photo all over again because they're all there with us in that moment.
But here's the thing. If you look really closely at that photo, you're going to see some faces that you might not want to recognize as well. You know, that Facebook friend that you fight with about politics? He's in there too. You know that family member that you disagree with and despite your best efforts you somehow find a way to argue whenever you're together about whatever topic, like whatever topic, any of a number of topics? She's there too. You know that person who hurt you? You know that person that you hurt? They're in that family photo with you. Yeah, even the surprising people are there in the communion of saints. You want to know why? You want to know why this photo is as big as it is? Why this communion of saints is as large as it is? It's because we're all related. You want to know how? It's, it's not because of our DNA 75 generations ago. This family photo we're united in a more important way. Here's a hint. Look at the next line in the creed. I believe in the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. There you go. That's why. The thing that draws us together. The thing that unites us and binds us from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, from a diverse set of settings all around the world and throughout time is not that we are flawless, but that we are forgiven. Forgiven by a God who lavishes upon us undeserved grace, forgiveness of our sins that we do not deserve, that we cannot earn. And because of that, because we can be reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to each other across our differences all around the world. You know, it's interesting. Whenever the people of God in the Methodist Church gather together to receive communion at the table like we're going to do in a few moments, the official liturgy of the church advises that we are to offer a prayer of confession first. A lengthy prayer where we acknowledge just how imperfect and how unworthy we are. Just like it's Paul says to the Corinthian church in the scripture today. Oftentimes on the first Sunday of the month, we, we skip that prayer of confession. Not because we don't believe in confession, but because of time. But today we're going to make the time. Because as we draw close our, our worship series on the core of our convictions, it is important to remember that the forgiveness of our sins is what binds us all together. Not our own efforts, not our own achievements, but the grace of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what kind of things you're struggling with this morning, what kind of week you've had, or what kind of differences seem to fill you with fatigue day after day after day as you look at how divided we are. Today, before you take of the bread and the cup, lay it all out on the table. We're going to do this confession prayer this morning. And this time, open your heart out to God in penitence and repentance 
for anything that is blocking the free flow of God's grace in your life. I invite your attention to the screen as we join together in this prayer of confession to remember that we are part of the communion of saints because of God's forgiveness of our sins. Let us pray in unison. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us offer silent prayers of confession. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and your response. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. And now, for one final time in this worship series on the core of our convictions, we will close the sermon with a joint recitation of the Apostles' Creed. As we affirm our faith together this time, think about all the words and the phrases that we have covered over the past five weeks. Think about the meaning that you may have received as we've gone through this line by line. But mostly today, when you get to that line about the communion of saints, don't hum along in silence like a Lutheran in 1600. <laughs> that's, that's not in my manuscript. Don't tell... <laughs> Don't tell the Lutherans I said that, but say it with pride. Say it with deep appreciation for this grand cosmic family that God has united together. And then say the next line with equal gusto. The forgiveness of sins, yours from a gracious God in Jesus Christ. We invite you to stand. I direct your attention to the screen as we affirm our faith together. Church, what is it? that you believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Because you are joined in the grand family and because your sins have been forgiven, we call upon you to offer the fullness of your lives over to God.
to continue God's work throughout the kingdom. And so as you prepare your tithes, your gifts, your offerings, and your prayer cards, let us prepare our hearts as we join together in Holy Communion. Will the ushers come forward at this time?